Thank you so much for listening to Elector Podcast. This is Mark. I'm here with Marcos. And the episode we have for you today, we recorded a couple years ago. It's uh, our friend Colonel Jack Thompson, and we wanted to uh, release it today. It's his 90th birthday today. Happy birthday, Jack. And um, um, the audio quality on this recording is a little rough. Um, you know, we recorded it outside. Um with a cigar with him a while back and and it was just a windy windy night and so it's a little bit it was uh, a good night though it was a great it was night. amazing night. we wanted to interview uh mr thompson because he is uh he he has lived uh most of his life in the city of miami uh, specifically uh, coral gables in miami uh so he's got a lot of stories to tell about this this uh, weird city that we live in, and uh, he—he—you'll—I think you'll enjoy the interview because he sheds light on on some things that that will kind of take you back to what Miami was like and uh, in, in, into the I think I think even the depression era right for, for a very yeah. long time yeah, yeah. and uh, and he's he's just an, an amazing uh, uh, community leader he and his wife uh, have uh, are, are well known in our community um, so many people are thankful for uh, their their lives they have they have helped so many people and have have advanced the careers and lives of, of many others and for this purposes of this podcast uh i think you'll enjoy the stories of miami but you'll also hear him tell the story of the time when his dad had a law firm in havana an office in havana and how uh, Jack got his uh, lawyering skills honed in, in Havana, Cuba. And you'll hear the incredible story of the time that he was there when the uh, when the what's called the uh, the the revolution in Cuba happened that he was there that day, so yeah. and sit back and enjoy, light a cigar if you got him, smoke him, and uh, Colonel Jack, we salute you and we wish you a wonderful birthday. Happy birthday. As the torciadores quietly rolled their cigars and the despalilladoras stripped the stems from the tobacco leaves, they were entertained, informed, and inspired by literature and the daily news. So began the tradition of El Lector, the reader. This is the El Lector podcast, stories and cigars from the exiled South. We're sitting here on a, a windy back, uh, beautiful pool terrace yeah. Yeah. with Jack Thompson, Colonel Jack Thompson. And Jack's introduced himself. He, um, tell us, give us the one one sentence biography or the paragraph biography. Well, I'm a native Miamian. My dad was a lawyer in town uh, also, coming from Indiana. Uh, 
and that's a whole other story. Um, and I've been practicing law for 60 years this year in, in Dade County. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, let's go way back though. Where did you go to elementary school? Elementary school, the uh, uh, once I got back to Florida. Yeah. Uh, because we had a little bit of a break uh, called the Depression. Oh. Uh, yeah. And Dad went broke in 1932. I was born in 1931, so he went broke in 32. And um, he called his friend in Chicago, in the First National Bank of Chicago, and he says, "I need a job." And his friend said, "Well, you're overqualified for anything we have." And he says, "Well, I don't know what that is, but I've got five cents left in my pocket, and I need a, I need a job." So we wound up in Chicago during the Depression. And uh, my first uh, really memories uh, are the snowstorms in Chicago. Wow. And I hated snow. It was cold, bitter. And uh, mm -hmm. we finally, in 19, fall of 1937, came back to uh, Florida. And uh, I knew when I breathed Florida air for the first time that I was aware of it. I said, wow. this is home for me. I'm here. So my first school that I have memory of also is, is uh, William Jennings Bryant Elementary in North Miami, and it's still there. Uh, I'm a graduate uh, of the that school in the sixth grade. We went six grades at the time. Looks the way it was supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> Not like it is now. No. <laughs> then, I, uh, then we moved out to Carl Gables. Uh, from there. Uh, Class of sixth, uh, sixth grade, class of what? Class of 43. 43? Yeah. And was your father, sorry, your father was born in Miami? No, he was born in Greensburg, Indiana, mm. uh, where uh, Carl Fisher came from, that developed Dade County, mm. uh, and a couple other folks, and, and uh, so he thought that this would be paradise, and he was yeah. right, and he got down here. And he got us back out of Chicago because he was um, uh, firm on staying in Florida. And Indiana's great, nice people up there. Yeah. And I've gone up there Some. quite a bit. <laughs> Jack knows I'm from Indiana. Yeah. I'm from the, the part of Indiana that doesn't, the rest of Indiana doesn't claim. <laughs> I got to college in the middle of Indiana. They called us, they said, oh, you're from Hammond. That's the armpit of Indiana. And my mom, having lived in that part of move, she said, well, you respond, well, that must make you the asshole. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, I have good memories because we were all farmers in, in Greensburg. So yeah. the summers, I spent a lot of summers on the farm. And uh, So what was your dad doing in Miami when the Depression came, at the time of the Depression? Okay. Up until that uh, point. It, it goes back to 1925 mm -hmm. when... Um, uh, he graduated from law school. He was in World War One, and he got an engineering degree out of Purdue. Uh, and then he decided that uh, he needed to be a lawyer to protect himself, so he went to Indiana Law School. And he had just graduated from that. His dad uh, was uh, comptroller of Manufacturers Hanover Trust at the time. I uh, was in the office of the comptroller, and. Uh, they, with the First National Bank of Chicago and two other banks, decided to finance South Florida with mortgages. Um, and 
so when they made their deal, they turned around and said, okay, who are we going to send down to be our lawyer? And Frank, my grandfather, said, listen, I'll send my son down. So all the plans that Dad made to be an aeronautical engineer, and do, he had a job that was making a ton of money um, given to him by his father. Yeah. So that's the first uh, things that, that, that happened. He came down here in 25, set up his practice, and uh, then the depression came and, and everything was foreclosed, and when everything was gone, he was out of business. Wow. And that's when he called the bank and said, I need a job. So uh, he was one of the early uh, pioneers in the law. His first office was on Miami Beach at 5th and Washington. Wow. And he was the third lawyer in, in Miami Beach. Uh, and then they opened up the Ingram Building, which is still there, uh, in February 1927, and he moved into that. He's one of the first seven lawyers in the Ingram Building. Wow. Uh, and he stayed there until he uh, uh, had Parkinson's, came out here a little bit, but uh, he had to quit practicing law in 62. Uh, and then he uh, gradually got worse and worse. He had 20 years of Parkinson's. Is a whole nother story. Yeah. Um, but he's a great guy. Uh, except that when I went to work for him um, after law school, I learned he was not a teacher because he would give me a, a file with a with a with a uh, mission to prepare a contract, and I would struggle with it and. About two days later, he'd come to me and he said, you still get worked on that? I said, yes. He said, this is how you do it. He'd take a boom. He dictated the whole thing without looking at anything. Well, I was very impressed with that, but it wasn't teaching me anything. Yeah. You know, so I finally, uh, after we came back from Cuba in February of 61, because I was basically an accountant in the early days in Cuba. Mm -hmm. um, I was going with a 25-member law firm. So I was interning with them, uh, getting ready to handle their north-south business um, and in Florida. Uh, and at the same time, I was handling the investments that we had in the various enterprises in Cuba. Okay, so we're in Cuba already now, because I didn't think we were going to get there that quickly. Because yeah. I want to stay here a little bit, of I'll course, for obvious reasons. Lead me back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so when, when how? You, you're you're acting as an accountant in Cuba for this firm, right? Is this your right. father's fir, uh, yeah. firm? Okay. Right. All, all dad's business. Yeah. And uh, how old are you at this time? Um, let's see. That was uh, post army, post law school. I graduated from law school in '56, uh, and I've been going to Cuba um, already. A couple, no, I graduated law school in 59, I'm sorry, hmm. 59, and, and from 56 to 59, while I was in law school, I was going back and forth to Cuba and mm -hmm. staying at our apartment in Edificio Foxa. Oh, wow. Okay, so your father had offices in, in Cuba as well? That was it. That was it? He worked out of the, um, uh, he's an investor and a, and a developer. Mm -hmm. We had a real estate developer on uh, Isle of Pines, for instance, was, we were selling lots. Right. And. Uh, uh, he had other ventures that I don't want to go into. Sure. But uh, yeah, 
we we did a lot of business in Cuba and and Dominican Republic and uh, other islands around. So did he have his office in the Foxa building? Yeah. Okay. So let's stop. Let's pause. Yeah. So what's cool about this? When Jack told me this the other day, he said that the um, basically that he his dad had a condo in the Foxa building. And and I, and I was like, what the what? Because you and I, when I, I told Jack, I explained, I explained to you that when we went to Cuba, Mark and I got to go last year, and we had to go change some money. So Mark, why don't you tell them this? Because uh, oh, first actually, let me let me let's explain what the Foxa building was at the time. The Foxa building was the tallest building in in Havana, right? Still it is. Still is. Yeah, because yeah, they haven't built anything. And uh, <laughs> after the revolution, but it was. It it was a state-of-the-art building, right? It was. It was kind first, of like. It was the first high-rise poured concrete building that was built anywhere in in the that part of the world. Yeah. Um, and and it was 34 stories. The Latore Country Club was the top four stories on the building. Gorgeous country club. Uh, and then we were on the 25th floor, and and the, the floors were. From one side, you had both sides. It was through the whole building. So we had views of uh, Havana downtown, and we had views of the yacht and the uh, other district of uh, yeah. uh, Havana. Gorgeous building, and, and it had um, hallways. There's a hallway for the workers to go in, and then there's a hallway for the owners. Yeah. And it was one of those strange deals that I've never seen before, because they had their own elevators to use, and we had ours. Yeah. And you didn't let your employees use ours. Right. That was new at the time. That, that wasn't was something. New. Yeah, you had never seen. Plus, it was the first building, if I'm not mistaken, to be built with air conditioning. Probably. Yeah, that's what I think. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, I believe it was a, it was completely air conditioned. Yeah. It, it was, was one of the first It was just ones. coming out in those days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we we had central air. And it had restaurants. Yeah, down, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Did, well, how did your father end up having an office in that building? Well, it, it, our apartment was the office. Oh, your apartment was the office. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we, was, didn't, we didn't need an office to operate out of because. Uh, when, we're doing, when we're doing deals, we use the office of the lawyers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and we had yeah. uh, uh, one lawyer down there that basically was our lawyer mm. in most of our business transactions. Uh, Valdivicio. Right. Yeah. Uh, he came up here on the first program they had for Cubans. They sent Cubans all over the United States, and and he he went. Um, up north to uh, Nebraska, and uh, he was back in two years. The, the Cubans couldn't live in that climate. <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so what was like uh, before we continue on with Cuba? And I do want to ask you the same question about Cuba because I'm definitely interested. But being in Miami in uh, growing up here, um, what are some of your thoughts about life growing up in Miami when you were a kid? Uh, I don't think it was much different than any other city in America mm -hmm. at the time. It was uh, the weather was great. Uh, we every Sunday we went to church. 
And after church, we went home, changed clothes, grabbed the hot dogs, went to the 79th Street Beach area where they had the sand dunes still. Wow. And we, we cooked a fire in a sand dune and had our hot dogs and spent the afternoon at the beach. Um, and uh, then we came back into North Miami and on the side of White Liquor Store at Northeast 6th Avenue and 125th Street. Uh, every Sunday night they had a free movie. You could sit on the lawn, you know, spread your blanket on the lawn and watch the movie. And so that's what we did. We, we uh, spent some time at the beach, came back in, then we went to see the movie. Huh. Uh, and I didn't really realize at the time that uh, things were bad. And when Dad came back, the depression was not exactly over yet. Uh, and he was establishing a practice again, and uh, he didn't have any extra money to do anything. And that Sunday was us magic. But uh, we, that's all he could afford. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. So hot dogs on 79th Street Beach on the sand dunes. Oh, that was gorgeous. Uh, 79th Street Beach. Uh, there's nothing there. Uh, there's a couple of hotels uh, yeah. on down it uh, in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, but there was all that strip from uh, uh, 72nd Street on to 82nd was beach. I could ride my bike over there. Really? Yeah, and it was, I did. And where were you living at the time, Northwest? Living at, uh, in North Miami uh, on 126th Street, and then we moved into Biscayne Park, which was a nice place, on 8th Street and, and uh, 115th Street, 8th Avenue and 115th Street. And that was paradise. I mean, I walked two miles to school every morning. Yeah, you know, and came home. There's no buses and all that stuff. You know, we, yeah, we, what a walk. We got us awesome. all. It was fun. Yeah. We walked through the forest. I, everything so that forest. was east of us was pine forest. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I don't think there's any forest over there. Now. No, there's no yeah. forest, no. So, so you, um, so did, what was your, did you, did you enjoy fishing when you were a kid? Yeah, matter of fact, uh, we did uh, in, during World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, we were still out in that area until uh, 44, 43. Mm-hmm. 43, I got out of the elementary school and went to Carl Gables in the Carl Gables Elementary. Yeah. And so that period of time of the Depression years that, that we spent in, in this area was 37 to 43, and by 43, we were doing fine. Mm-hmm. Everything's everything's good. We moved to Carl Gables. Yeah, good. Yeah. You know, um, we were always Presbyterian. There's always stories about uh, you start out as Baptist, then when you have money, you become a Presbyterian. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I like that. We were we've been Scotch Presbyterian uh, all our lives. We have 37 ministers. Yeah. uh, Identified around the country. Uh, Our minister uh, uncle. Started Wabash College in uh, Crawfordsville. Yeah. Uh, and it's still there today, and I still kind of correspond with them. Wow. Uh, and I'm one of the few Thompsons that's doing that. Uh, and I've been there to Wabash. Uh, none of my kids went there, but you know, it's a boys' school, and Robert uh, uh, didn't go there. He went to FSU. I've got some grandchildren coming up, and I don't think they're going to go there either. <laughs> it's a shame because no Thompson has been in that school 
since 1913. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's what I've told mm. by the uh, president. Uh, so, so where'd you go fishing? North Biscayne Bay, right out, right out of the uh, little river. You know, we would have a little small boat at the house. We we'd put in the water and go out in the bay, and uh, there was uh, all the fish you ever wanted to eat right there in, in that northern part of Biscayne Bay. Which, right there, right there in the water. Right yeah. there, and uh, years later, as you know, it all the grass disappeared. Yeah. Uh, and for years, it was it was no place to fish there. You had to you'd go out in the ocean. Yeah. Um, and they've cleaned it up now. Yeah, cleaned so it up somewhat. It's back together now. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we did until uh, Dad bought Allied Marine on the river. Mm. Um, yeah, right in there at, at 1944, 45. Um, bought it out of bankruptcy, and, and he and two other guys. Uh, and we always had a 40-foot boat. Wow. From that time on, you know, we did. We had we were building boats, so we always had a boat available. Right. And um, most of the time, Dad would get a guy to be his captain, and so we'd we'd go out, we'd cruise and fish and uh, swim and dive and all the things you do. Yeah. In Florida. Yeah. And uh, I've been boating until last year. Yep. I sold my 36-foot Sea Ray Sundancer last year. Mm. Uh, I can't stand that long to operate a boat. So uh, that's it. Boating was was uh, always uh, what we we did. You we enjoyed it. All the waters by the back of our hands. We could go anywhere at night. We would never get busted on the, uh, the rocks that that government cut because we knew it was there uh-huh. and it was dangerous. Uh, you have to be an idiot to get drunk and go into that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so it, it, yeah, it's almost like being in Miami. It, it would be so much better if I had a boat. If I, <laughs> you know, well, I got enjoyed a lot more. Well, I'll tell you the next thing you do because uh, uh, I'm talking so much this light, this cigar won't stay lit. <laughs> yeah. Um, in 1962, I quit smoking cigarettes mm-hmm. um, and quit playing golf. Same year, I was junior member at the Riviera Country Club, and and uh, Dad was a founding member. Yeah. And um, he couldn't play golf anymore uh, with his illness, and uh, I couldn't, and I couldn't see any reason to stay in the uh, club mm-hmm. because um, we weren't exactly party folks. Never yeah. have been. We're dance, we're ballroom dancers, but. Um, not the kind of parties that are at the Riviera. Yeah. So I turned around a few times. I represented the captain and the Pan American captain, and I just happened to mention to him that uh, I always wanted to learn how to fly. My dad was aeronautical engineer, and he never learned how to fly. And uh, so he said, "Well, I'll teach you." Oh. He said I was an instructor in Arizona during the war. So uh, and what an instructor he was. Mm-hmm. He taught me how to be a good pilot, and uh, just so happened I was with a law firm that represented uh, uh, the president of uh, Northeast Airlines on his land that he had up in Central Florida, and I was the one assigned to go up there and do it all and help him. And uh, 
so one day he called me and um, I was kind of slow learning how to fly and I didn't have the money uh, in this but 1965, uh, George called me and he said, uh, Jack, you know what just happened to me? I said, no, sir. He said, they won't insure my plane anymore. I just turned 70. And I can fly it, I can rent a plane and fly it, but they won't let me have my own airplane. And I said, oh, that's awful. He said, I, I heard you just learned how to fly. And I, I said, yes, sir. Matter of fact, I'm doing my cross countries now. And uh, he said, well, would you like an airplane? <laughs> wow. Uh, and he had one of the first Cessna 172s that came off the line in 53. Uh, they gave the first five to the presence of the airlines. Mm. And he had one. So he gave me that airplane. Wow. <laughs> nice gift. <Good> deal. <laughs> yeah, I kept that for over 10 years. And it, it just so happened that I went had a lot of business going in, in uh, the Bahamas yeah. and in North Carolina. I was at this time representing developers of uh, second home resorts. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so you so were they, flying yourself back and forth? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I did put a lot of hours in the airplane going over there and uh, I spent a lot of time living in Nassau. Huh. At the Balmoral. Uh, oh, Balmoral. I love Nassau. So you said you should get a boat. He's like, no, no, a plane is. A plane where is where you need to go. Exactly. <laughs> now I know. <laughs> well, I love hearing about. To, to go back to the boat just a second. My father-in-law grew up, you know, in Coconut Grove. He was born and raised in Miami, and he's uh, he's in his mid 60s now, and. We'll go out on his boat. He has a, I think it's like a 17 or 18 foot, just like a ski boat. That's all you need. And it, it is incredible. He'll <laughs> yeah. let me drive it. And I'm always just like, how do I know what's under the water? Like, I don't want to hit anything. Yeah. And he's just like, oh, you can tell. And I'm like, I can't tell. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's been, you know, you, you were he's smarter. never not been driving a boat. And a lot of people were, were hitting the ground. Yeah. And that's that's part of what the problems we had in Biscayne Bay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we knew the waters. Talk a little bit about your better half, Dorothy. Yeah. Uh, you and Dorothy met in Miami? Yes. The, yes. The, um, that was. This is uh, your wife, by the way, I'm talking about. <laughs> I mentioned Dorothy, your better half. This is your. Yeah. Old, uh, Jack's wife, yes. Great. Um, great coincidences in life sometimes happen to you, and I've had a few that um, changed my life and, and uh, uh, made it what it turned out to be all my life. Mm. Uh, Dorothy came down with her mother in 1953 in uh, July. Mm -hmm. And I just graduated from University of Miami with a uh, uh, major in accounting and had gone to work for a law firm, or an accounting firm rather, uh -huh. in downtown Miami. Uh, and I still drove a taxi cab. Uh, at the end of the story, uh, we had a little time where Dad had some financial problems at the University of Florida the first two years, and then he ran out of money, and he said, you can come home and, and, and uh, go to the University of Miami and work work it out there, or uh, you can join the Army. Well, the Korean War was hot war at the time. That didn't sound like a good idea to me, so uh, I went to the University of Miami where I got the uh, uh, indication that I wasn't going to be drafted until 
I graduated college. Right. <clears throat> um, and I had already tried to join the Navy, and they turned me down. So I didn't really think I was going to ever be in the service. And uh, I was engaged to uh, a girl by the name of Beverly who I'd met in St. Teresa because St. Teresa had the best youth program at the time. Mm -hmm. And I'd been in that program for about eight years. All my friends were Catholic. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I never dated a Protestant girl until Dorothy. <laughs> okay. Wow. And so I was engaged to Bert, to Beverly. And uh, we, uh, in September, Fifty-three. Uh, we went to her house to set the date, um, and and she had agreed that um, we would go to the Presbyterian Church and uh, raise her kids Presbyterian. Mm. Uh, very pretty, nice girl. And we went to the house that night. I did. I came into the house to talk to her parents, and there was. Uh, Father O'Reilly or some such Irish priest that I knew, and uh, uh, he said, hello, my son, and I knew something was up. Yeah, it was an intervention <laughs> of sorts. <laughs> so, good old Irish intervention. They came, they came on strong. She was <clears throat> going to be Catholic, and our kids would be Catholic, and I, I told him, I said, no, I can't do that. Mm. Um, Beverly, I, I love you a lot, but uh, uh, if that's the way it's going, I can't do it. And I said, do, me, do yourself a favor. Don't ever date a Protestant boy again because this is not good for you or me. Yeah. Um, and I left. Mm. And Dorothy, when she had moved in, moved into an apartment in front of uh, Gus Jenner, who was a Miami-Dade cop. And his brother was my best friend, and he was in Korea at the time in the Air Force. And uh, so Gus decided that uh, this pretty girl had to go with somebody he knew, <laughs> and I was family. Okay. <laughs> so I got introduced to Dorothy, and uh, uh, we hit it off. And within four weeks, we were engaged, and uh, we got married in 12 weeks from the time we met. Wow. On November 29th, 1953. 12 weeks. 12 weeks. Sweet. Way to go, Jack. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it gets better because uh, I was drafted in uh, January. Uh, so two months after we were married, I go off for, for three months in the Army. Wow. <laughs> and uh, I remember your kids, uh, I thought it was 4F, you know. I went through the whole thing at the reception center. Yeah. With the doctors and they spent all day going through all your medical and it's roughly 2.30 in the afternoon. Uh, I met with a doctor and he uh, explained to me that I'd had a good day and everything was, was great and uh, he stamped right in front of me, hey, <laughs> on my papers and I said, uh, well, wait a minute, I'm 4F. He says, how do you figure that? I said, well, the Navy didn't want me, so I was 4F. Yeah. He says, well, the Army wants you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, did you bring your clothes with you? I said, what do you mean? He said, the train leaves at 5 o'clock. Wow. Yeah. 
right in downtown Miami, the train came in those days. And, and, and so I called Dorothy and I said, I said Dorothy, uh, I was crying, you know, I said, I'm yeah. leaving at five o'clock, bring right. some clothes. <laughs> wow, oh my goodness. And, and uh, so she got a suitcase together. Um, she didn't put the first sweater or coat in it. And so I got up to Fort Jackson uh, in the end of January and it's cold. Uh-huh. And I was freezing, and, and they didn't issue clothes for about five or six days, and that was like torture. Wow! But uh, I finally got my clothes and got warm again, and uh, then of course I, I always am talkative, like you can tell right now. <laughs> and and uh, I got friendly with the. Uh, uh, commander of the basic training outfit and he found out I was an accountant and he said would you help me with my income tax I said of course because I explained that's what I did in law in the accounting firm I was with so I did the income tax for him and the executive officer and the battalion officer and the personnel officer so at the end of basic training but only pulled me on the days when there nothing was going on. Yeah. You know, uh, and I'd go work in, in, the, in the company room mm-hmm. on the returns. And uh, so the personnel officer asked me, he said, Jack, where do you want to go? Uh, Germany or Korea? And I said, neither. I said, I've just gotten married. I'd like to stay in, my, in the United States. So he says, I'll take care of you. Wow, that's great. So I wound up in uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky in the 11th Airborne that had just come out of Korea to get refurbished and they had a crazy general that uh, did a little maneuver for the senators and congressmen in Korea, uh, plans and all, and watching from the hill. The problem is the enemy got the plans mm-hmm. and they wiped us out. Uh, and and he was, that's really how they sent us all back uh, because it was very demoralizing and this guy made a terrible mistake and he wasn't going to be in the army much longer. They sent him back and, and uh, he, as general, has three years of uh, time. If you're not promoted to the next rank of general, you're, you're out. Okay, so uh, he was on his way out. And I got into being into uh, G2 intelligence, um, which was a great assignment. Yeah. And uh, Major Moon was my superior, and he was really a very uh, dedicated officer, put it bluntly. And uh, one day he came in, and he said, uh, Thompson, he said, you're going to be so excited. Uh, we're going to be the first two U.S. personnel to drop in the Indian food, uh, which is in Indochina, which is now yeah. uh, uh, Vietnam. Right. And the Viet Cong were surrounding this. They, they couldn't, something like um, 20% or better of their troops were dead before they hit the ground. Uh, what year was this? This was 1954. It was it was July of 1954, uh, and uh, 
we were getting all the reports. That's yeah. why we were in intelligence. And by the way, we were an atomic bomb base too. Mm-hmm. One of the seven in the country, very secret. So I was really in the center of everything that's going on. So Major Smith thought, this is great. We'll be the first U.S. personnel dropping in there. I said, sir, I said, they're surrounded. Why are we doing that? He said, we're going to find out what's going on. I said, sir, they're, they're getting killed. <laughs> yeah. And he said, well, we're going to go. And we'll get their good report going back. And I, I looked at him and I said, this is a volunteer mission, is it not? He says, of course. He says, well, I don't volunteer, sir. Yeah. And he got red in the face, uh, steamed out of the room, went down to personnel and said, send Thompson to the most godforsaken place on God's green earth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so personnel officer called me. He says, what the hell did you do? And I explained to him what happened. And he says, I'll take care of you. So, mm. <laughs> so, take care of it. There you go. So he sent me to Fort Jackson, South Carolina in the 101st, which was a training operation. Took away my only chance to, to jump. I was scheduled to go to jump school in a month, um, and um, he was he obviously Major Moon said Monday you're going to jump school. Friday we we, we depart. Yeah. I finished my my tour in uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina, nice place. And Dorothy worked at the telephone company, uh, both at, in, in Nashville when I was up at. Um, Campbell, and then she transferred down to. Oh, so she followed you around while you were yeah. good. Yeah. I was able to. We, we had a great time. Yeah. Best thing can happen to a young couple: get away from both parents. Yeah. You know, <laughs> exactly. Fight it out. Yeah. Um, and and determine who's who's the head of the family. Right. Um, and uh, I soon found out who was. <laughs> 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 well, she's a great lady. Yeah. We, we like her a lot. All right. So, le- okay, so, okay, now I want to go back to Cuba. So, because you're in 1954, um, I guess you, you end up sometime after working for your dad again. Mm-hmm. You're in Cuba, and this is uh, right before the revolution, I guess, right? Yeah, the folks building was uh, built in... 1956. We closed on it uh, in December. Uh-huh. Then we stayed there 57 through 61. Wow. Well, February 61. They closed the U.S. Embassy in January, so I had to finally get out. Uh, and it took me a month to, at that time, to get out trying to salvage. All I did for most of the time in Cuba was trying to salvage our assets assets of Cubans uh, to get things out of the country. Now, were you, were you, um, I, I'm guessing you weren't because I think it was, was it, was it Christmas? I always forget. I was such a bad Cuban. Was it Christmas Day or was it New Year's Eve when he, when Batista left? I forget. New Year's Day. New Year's Day, that was it. Were you there when he left? No, we had uh, the Christmas party at, at uh, the, the folks uh, on the third floor. They've got that the party area is, mm-hmm. the swimming pool. Yeah. And, and we had owners, we always had parties down there. Um, and it was a very friendly building. And uh, as we were 
enjoying the uh, weather and, and the food and uh, Christmas. Uh, someone came over to Dad and said, uh, get out of town. Wow, really? Yeah. Um, and That's so the next day, we caught a plane and came back to Miami. So he was told before? Yeah. He was told that Castro was going to make his march across the country and into Havana. Oh well, yeah, actually, that was that was that was known. That's why Batista was kind of back and forth, like the way Batista he got his gold out. Yeah. Uh, and and left. Yeah. Uh, but that all started right after Christmas. Right. Everything fell apart. I mean, the, 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 you could hear the rifle fire, machine gun fire down below. Mm. Uh, and. Uh, the, the troops were ready for Castro to come in, and they were blowing off their firearms. The war was over, they won, and the British cost us the war. Which the British, uh, uh, earlier that year, uh, pulled back the tanks that they had coming in mm. to help Batista. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah, and. Uh, that was the one act that um, just killed him. I mean, we we had we didn't have the equipment that Castro was getting his hands on. Right. Um, and so we came back up, and anybody who was down there got stuck for at least two to three weeks before they could get out of the country. Wow. Nobody left. So it was good we were out. <laughs> now, folks in the uh, the folks in the folks the building. <laughs> The folks in the Foxa building were were they mostly um, were it, were were there nationals like Cuban nationals oh, yeah. living there? It was it was about half and half. Half and half. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So so you know it was basically you were you were sharing Christmas part the Christmas party with all kinds of folks right. in the building. Yeah. Oh yeah, the important people around town were there. What was what was it like? Because that was that was in the, the Foxa building is in Vedado in the Vedado district. Mm -hmm. Seventeenth and M. Yep. There you go. Look at he remembers the address. <laughs> uh, so yeah, when we stayed in, to, in last year, we 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 rented a house on Airbnb on that same street. That's how we ended up going to the Foxa to change money. Um, Mark, why don't you? You've been kind of quiet. Tell, tell about what, how we went to the Foxa and what you saw. Yeah. So it was neat. We walked just a handful of blocks towards towards the water. And, and you, you're very aware of the, the building because it's it really is the only big building around. You know, most of the buildings in the area are two to three stories. You know, townhomes, kind of you know small apartment buildings. And we went uh, to change money. We had changed some money at the airport, but this was a few days later. And um, we got in line, and you know, the, to change money. It, go into a small vestibule and there's a couple uh, you know like tellers at a counter and we were waiting for our turn and someone came out from inside and, and announced this line is only for uh, foreigners no Cubans in this line and and we saw a woman you know who had been standing there yeah she'd been waiting in line with us for you know it wasn't a, a very long time maybe 15 minutes or so and, and she just threw her hands up in the air like, you know, oh, this country. She said, what a country. Yeah. Caballero, what a country. That's what she said. Yeah. 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 And so, it, but um, you're, I, I felt very aware, this is the only time I've been to Cuba, of 
the juxtaposition of this building, it I would imagine at the time when you lived in it that it was the harbinger of what was to come with this, you know, jewel of the Caribbean and Oh yeah. We, yeah. we were uh, we, we we bought a whole uh, block. Uh, just near the Capri. Uh, and all the houses and, and apartment buildings, we were going to build the first Holiday Inn offshore. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, we had the deal all made, and um, of course that didn't happen. Yeah. Thank God we were not under construction, we were just close huh. to it. Well, and that was so striking to me because you know, this building you, you, is like an unrealized future of Cuba. That's kind of what mm -hmm. the, the sense was. And then you, you know, there along the Malacón, the, the beautiful roadway there along the water with the seawall. Yeah, and you couldn't already cross it. Yeah. But you can walk across it. I mean, Traffic. Oh. Yeah. Well, now it, it, there's buildings that in Miami Beach would be, you know, even a small lot with only one window seeing the water would be millions of dollars. And here it's it's a, a gutted building, you know, it's uninhabitable or in Cuba. And I, I, I was very struck by that, just the unrealized potential, I guess, or... or yeah. Well, let me ask you a question, Jack, because you seem to know a lot about the real estate situation in Cuba in the 1950s. I, I, I saw recently, I had not heard about this. Now, I, every time I see something that comes from Cuban media, I have to take, take it with a grain of salt because you don't know historically if what they're presenting is factual or not, um, especially when you're dealing with anything pre-revolution. And also, if this is true, what I'm about to ask you, I, 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 uh, when they when they talked about it, I saw it as well. That may have been a good thing. And, and what it, what it is is uh, I read, I re or I saw this uh, piece where they were talking about the uh, Batista had plans to create an island, an, like some kind of island offshore, like like just make a fill-in island off the sh offshore there, or some some kind of peninsula or something. Yeah. Vaguely, I remember that. Yeah, and yeah. but um, and there were two things that, that one 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 viewpoint, which is the you know uh, the the Cuban government's viewpoint, is like see it was it was to exploit the land and the sea and all this stuff. But then the other point was that the other uh, point that somebody made very humbly on Cuban television was well it, it was it was it was going to be seen as a way to keep to preserve historic old Havana, which was getting, you know, it was just, there were so many people in there and there was so much going on around it. It was, it was one way to say, we want to keep this the way it is and have this place offshore. So if, did you heard about that? You had I heard about the island. I didn't think it was uh, to maintain the uh, historical nature. I think it was to um, uh, be for the wealthy. Okay. Moving on. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... but Back on old old Havana, uh, Batista, you know, he put the roads in from one end of Cuba to the other. He's the one that, that made it possible to get around Cuba. That's right. Um, and he did first hospitals for unwed mothers and stuff like that. I mean, he was not a totally bad guy. Yeah, I, I saw a picture uh, just yesterday on the internet, and it was a, a pediatric hospital that they had built. I don't know if they, I don't know if he had built it or during Machado. It was a beautiful hospital, state of the art, just magnificent building, probably built in the 40s. 
and it's still it was I don't even know if it's still standing they showed a, a, a picture afterwards and it's it's collapsing on itself and it was you know and for all the talk that the, the that the revolution had about hospitals and literacy and all these things it was it was like what what is that you know I mean how do you let something like that happen you know and when we looked at the Foxa building it's still standing thank God because otherwise it would cause a lot of destruction if it collapsed but I don't even know and it didn't dawn on me that you had your family owned a condo there I definitely would have tried to explore that a little further and taken some more pictures maybe gone inside to, to your floor but um, I, I guess it's residences now but it, it, it didn't look like it was in that good of a condition no, right? It didn't. I'd it, be it shocked even. if there was a pool on the third floor anymore yeah. or in use anyway yeah, well, yeah it's, 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 been, it's, it's been run down the um, it was used for years to uh, house the second echelon of people coming in from Europe, uh, Yugoslavia and Russia and uh, the Ukraine, wherever, you know. Um, and we had some of those people staying in our apartment. Mm. I kept up with who's where in that. And uh, it's now a medical college, and, and I suspect that uh, uh, medical students are in our apartment. Okay. As we speak. Medical college, okay. So, right, yeah. so I have a question, kind of a practical question, and I guess as, as uh, owners of the condo at the time of the revolution, uh, with the benefit of being able to leave beforehand, was that just... Um, did you were you able to rent it out or, or sell it eventually or I mean no yeah I mean it's just walked away gone. from it yeah yeah I, I went to um, the Banco Nacional de Cuba uh, and talked to the president uh, and right when I was trying to get the last thing out and I had thirty six thousand dollars left in the bank and I wrote checks to Cuban businesses that we dealt with. Uh, to pay bills, I talked to the president. I said, I, "We're not. I'm take. I'm not taking any money out of Cuba. I'm, I got all these checks here, and and I'd like to pay my Cuban bills. Uh, and at least use the money in your bank." He said, "Fine." And he initialed every check. Hmm. They all bounced. They all bounced. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's just the way things were. Yeah. yeah. So what was life like in those those years that you had in, in Cuba? Did you enjoy that? Oh, it was the most cosmopolitan city in the world. People from all over, every ethnic background was there in, in Cuba and in, in Havana. Uh, it was the north-south trade headquarters. Sure. Panama had the, had the western part and Cuba had the eastern part. Oh. Um, and that's what I was taking advantage of to be in a law firm that, that was handling that business and they needed the gringo to handle the business in Florida. Right. So I was always going to be going back and forth uh, from Cuba to Miami. Mm -hmm. That was what I planned to do. It never happened. Mm -hmm. um, my boss uh, left in October of uh, 58. Um, they came to pick up his limousine and drove off with it. He was waiting for the cab to take him to the airport. And they came back around and they opened up the trunk and took out the golf clubs and they said, uh, these are your clubs. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so he said, what am I going to do with them? You know? yeah. um, he was in, in uh, the Malabar area. Uh, in the what area? Malabar. Mm. That was the rich district of houses. 
I was there um, several months ago and, and taking the bus through that area. Oh, it was, it's so sad. Oh, you actually went to Cuba? Yeah, three months ago. Dorothy went back with our daughter Joanne mm -hmm. a month ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went back, took a tour of the city and saw the terrible shape it was in, yeah. partially because the hurricane had gone through and yeah. done a lot of damage. But uh, you can tell nothing had been done since 59. The people were proud because everybody had a house. Well, it was given to them from our property. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone else's house yeah. first. So. Yeah, the place we stayed at, that was one of the the things that struck us was someone this was someone's home yeah and then it wasn't their home yeah <laughs> and, and yeah and yeah. they've been changed into this odd looking like apartments on yeah. the second floor and yeah and yeah it was it's it's very striking to see that that's one of the reasons why my father said he and so many other folks his from his generation said it's it's not just they don't want to go back because of Castro they said they they, they some like some some of them like my father don't want to see the destruction yeah because they want to remember it for what it was you know yeah we may have that chance if uh, Venezuela uh, crumbles and Maduro's taken out um, that's where all the financial help is going to Cuba yeah uh, and Castro will not be able to survive Venezuela's collapse yeah so we'll see what I'm, I've always said, you know, the, the one thing is to tell you, we had started already, Batista started cleaning up old Havana and, and not changing it, but making it look like it should and maintaining the historical nature of it. The one thing he did, uh, Castro kept that going. Yeah. Um, and if Cuba is taken over, it's the last. Latin American city in all of South America that looks like the original cities were when yeah. I was there. Yeah. Because all the other, they've been tearing it down, putting up high-rise buildings. Nothing happened in Havana. Yeah. So Havana will be a historically unique Important place to go. Yeah. yeah. If, if they preserve it. Yeah. What a market that will be. I saw. Um, I did see a few years ago when I went on one of, one of my other trips, I, I was sitting on the Malecon with, uh, with some friends and we're looking at these buildings that were beautiful buildings on the, on, right, out, right along the Malecon, these old buildings. Um, and, you know, one of them that we went to, uh, we were told by the people who live there now, one of the, one of the families of like probably eight that live there now, that it was a... Um, it, it had it had been turned into apartments, but that it, that it had once been the home of a German dignitary who lived there, and um, and and uh, the place must have been magnificent. But anyway, the, all these buildings are falling apart, and we did see one that looked out of place. And what they did is they built, they tried to build one to look like the other ones, and it was horrible. It looked like an apartment building in Hialeah. And, and I was just so heartbroken about that. I was like, the, you know, you, that that construction can, I don't think it can be replicated. It would cost an ungodly amount of money to, yeah. to do that. I don't know what happened with um, Castro, but um, he never bought a can of paint. Never, he never did. No, no. Never, never did any repair work. They just, we stayed at, at um, 
the Riviera one time, and we went down in, in 82. Mm -hmm. I flew right seat on a uh, flight going down to take some people down for a funeral, which was allowed. And then we were there for two days waiting for them to go to the funeral. And uh, we were able to stay in the Riviera and go wherever we wanted to, because at that time in uh, Cuba, any any plain load of people, they always had a communist guide assigned to them. Yeah. Uh, we had no guide. We could do what we wanted. Mm. And so we really saw what Cuba was like and the people were like, and the whole thing had changed. We, people were sullen and um, unfriendly, and they weren't the Cubans that we knew when we were down there. Right. And, we went into a, a jewelry store, and all the um, cabinets, the artwork, and all you know, expensive wood, Neiman Marcus uh, uh, or Ethan Allen wood yeah. stuff. And uh, I, I said, "Boy, if, if, if we get this back, we're going to have some really unique places for people to visit." And you see, like, like yeah. it was, that stuff is still there. Yeah, and it, and the only thing that's ever maintained really well is the interior. Wow. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, so, casinos in Cuba in the 1950s? Oh, we had a great time. The uh, <laughs> Gert Gersten, who was our state's attorney at the time, big tall guy, he was there every weekend gambling. Yeah. Yeah, and and we would go down and. Uh, uh, walk over to the uh, Hotel Nacional or the Riviera uh, and before dinner we'd go and gamble and we'd, we'd win enough to go out and have dinner and, and show. Nice. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> and they had the two nightclubs uh, in Havana that, uh, I can't dredge up the name right now, but Dorothy Wood. Tropicana? Tropicana one. Yeah. Uh, and Wow, you're talking about the gambling and the shows. The shows were magnificent. Yeah. Uh, the whole experience in the evening was um, something that, that you can't replicate anywhere. Mm. Oh. Yeah. What a time. <laughs> yeah. So you have great memories in Cuba. Yeah. Yeah. Really do. Yeah. Well, Jack, thank you for uh, your time. Yeah.